It is Wednesday, July 14th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the podcast after dark tonight, although there's still some sun. I'm your host, Matt Schauff. With me, as always, is Jared Smolin. Joining us tonight is a special guest. He is the director of DFS content at 444.com. He is a co-host of the DFS MVP podcast. He is a lover of IPAs, and he is at TJ Hernandez on Twitter because that is his name. TJ Hernandez, thanks very much for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me, boys. I'm excited to be. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to be on here, leading up to the uh, Draft Sharks Invitational. I got that uh, in my inbox a couple weeks ago, so maybe I'll make a run at first place this year. I was going to say, Jared and I have certainly been aware of your work for a while now, and that's why we invited you last year to take part in the first Draft Sharks Invitational. That's why I'll be back to compete again in the field this year, where we've jumped from five to six leagues. Yeah, it was um, it was fun, and uh, it's just it's just fun format all around. So, like, I like obviously we're in the middle of Scott Fishball right now. So, like, the the multi league tournament is a, is a super fun setup, and it's nice to kind of I try not to check in um, every week because I'll go crazy, but it's nice to check in and see where you're standing and have a little rooting interest there. Now, I knew that we would want to have you on the show at some point. Uh, what kind of grabbed me this time is some of the things that I saw you tweet out uh, over the past week, week and a half. But we'll start with the correlation between positions and their offenses. And there's lots of talk all the time about, I don't want this guy because his offense is going to stink. I do want this guy because his offense is going to stink and they're going to throw the ball a ton and they'll be trailing. So I saw that you looked into the correlation between the different positions, their fantasy scoring and offenses that were good or bad in scoring ranks. What do you find in looking at looking into that? Yeah, I, I have to give a shout out to uh, Michelle Majuk, uh, Ball Blastum. She's the one that kind of sent out an initial tweet uh, that pointed out kind of last year that we saw a lot of top 12 running backs come from uh, offenses that, that weren't particularly great, um, which seemed kind of counterintuitive. So I, I did what you said. I, I basically just ran correlation for the point score for each team over the last decade and then compared it to their team positional fantasy points scored in half PPR. So not just looking at just like one running back, looking at the team running back. And the, the results were somewhat what you would expect. The quarterback had an extremely high correlation um, and with running backs, receivers having a, a relatively high correlation, running backs like 0.5, which means like points can explain 50% of running back fantasy scoring and then tight ends with a, a really low correlation. But the, the thing that we were really interested in or that I really looked at was um, how these running backs scored both relative to their, their team's scoring and then relative to quarterback scoring as well because kind of another layer to that was, well, if they have, like you said, a team that's that's throwing a lot, can they be um, a good fantasy running back? And, and we don't see a lot of instances, maybe two to three per year, where we have a uh, looking at elite numbers like top six quarterback and, and top 12 team running back. Only happens two or three times a year. And a lot of that has come from specifically the – Patriots and um, the Saints, teams that throw to their running backs a ton. So it, it is hard for those things to happen, but it's it's not impossible for us to say have a a running back come from a bad offense. And this isn't a groundbreaking idea, but the thing is, we need a guy like a James Robinson last year who is securing a huge portion of this backfield share. And that's kind of what I really started to zero in on: is are these guys going to have a huge chunk of their backfield share? And, if you're looking at a guy that is in risk of not having a huge backfield share or doesn't catch a lot of balls or both, and we are projecting their 
offense to be very bad, um, then the, the offensive is going to be bad. They're not going to score a lot of touchdown idea. does hold some water. But if it is a, a James Robinson tr- situation, obviously we didn't predict that. But if it is a running back who we are predicting to have an insane workload, like a Dalvin Cook or a Christian McCaffrey, obviously, um, they, they sh- really shouldn't be ground- downgraded too far, even if we do think their offense is going to be near the bottom of the league in scoring. Because when they do secure so much of that running back work, it offsets that scoring um, risk that we have there. Does that mean you're off DeAndre Swift? Things? I think he's kind of that guy who <laughs> we think is going to be sharing touches in a bad offense. Yeah, he's he's probably like uh, the, the poster boy for what's going on right now in terms of like what we're discussing and, and just so much downside um, in all of these aspects that we talked about. I mean, it, they just seem like outside of the Tex- Texans, the dumpster fire of the league, um, a new coach and a new OC, two guys, Anthony Lynn has just been, I mean, what he did with the charter. I mean, you can't say he used Austin Eckler very well, but his decision-making and, and how he runs an offense, I think is, is very bad. Um, Jared Goff has really struggled to support the Rams outside of, of his Pro Bowl year a couple of years ago. Uh, Jamal Williams, a guy that can siphon off touches in the running game and the passing game. And then just the fact that, I think this offense is just going to be abysmal. Yeah, he's he's kind of the guy that looked like he was trending the right way last year and just everything working against him. I, I just – I don't think I I have a DeAndre Swift share yet this year. He's interesting because he was going in round two and even climbing in round two. Mm-hmm. And then since then, he's really dipped to – I'm not sure where his ADP is at the moment. It's probably mid-round three, maybe just before the middle of it. But he, he's lasting to late round three. Is there – how far down do you think he has to get before he's really – he becomes a target? I mean, it, it always comes down to opportunity cost, right? So the, the issue with a guy like Swift, who I just think has immense downside, is that mm. even if he is falling around past his ADP, the way I'm, I'm typically building my rosters is if I'm in a position where I'm looking at a, a running back, say, in the third, or, or if he falls somehow to the fourth round, it's because I've – probably started with some combination of like a really good wide receiver, a, a Travis Kelsey um, at tight end or a good receiver, like, like a Devonte or a Tyreek um, uh, at wide receiver and looking for a guy that can really lock down my, my backfield. And as an RB one, I really don't want Deandre Swift there because of how much downside is there. Um, and then if I started with, a very high end running back saying around one or two, and I'm looking at Swift in the third or fourth round. Well, I'd much rather just take one of those wide receivers and tight ends in that range to secure that position. So it's kind of more of a roster building thing for me where there's so much downside built into him that even if I am getting him around past ADP, the opportunity cost in those rounds, rounds three or even four, if if he if the hype goes the opposite way on him even though the value's there, I just don't see myself drafting a guy like that in that kind of offense. Like, it would have to be like, he would have to be a fifth-round pick, basically, at this point, for me to like him. And I just mm-hmm. don't think he'll ever be that far, that low. So he's basically Travis Etienne. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've had trouble passing on Swift in the back half of round three. Like, assuming Keenan Allen and Michael Thomas are gone, I just think I, I just think he's good, and I feel good enough about his role in the passing game, especially with how weak their wide receivers are. I, I just think he's going to catch enough balls, you know, even if he – splits carries with Jamal Williams and doesn't score a bunch of touchdowns. I think he's going to catch enough balls to, you know, pay off a a third, fourth round price tag. 
I was vehemently against Swift in round two. I've kind of become indifferent to this point when he did, when he makes it to the middle uh, or back half of round three. Jared, did you find anything different? I know that you looked into some of the correlations. Did you find any different stuff? Yeah, I did this last try, and I used DVOA as my measure of you know offensive strength rather than uh, total points like TJ did. Um, pretty similar findings. Like, you know, quarterback definitely most correlated with offensive strength. Actually, tight ends came in second most correlated. And how I looked at it is I looked at the percentage of top 12 tight ends that came from top half DVOA offenses and then top 10 DVOA offenses. So like, for example, in the span I looked at, I think it was like 2005 to 2000, uh, what would have been uh, 19 at that point, uh, like 67% of top 12 tight ends came from the top 50% of top 16, or, you know, top uh, 16 DVOA offenses. So um, the, one, the one interesting thing I found was that elite players, at all these positions, those are the guys that overwhelmingly come from the elite offenses. Like 80% of top three quarterbacks came from teams that were in top eight of DVOA. So that, that, that was kind of my takeaway is when you're looking at early round picks or even, you know, the top three, four quarterbacks off the board, that's where I really want to make sure I'm taking guys from top end offenses. Cause it's rare. We see, you know, a running back finish top five on a bad yeah. offense. They can finish top 12, top 15, but the majority of these elite guys at these positions come from from the best offenses. Yeah, I found when when I looked at the the team correlations, the the tight ends did come in super low. But um, I did run numbers kind of similar that we didn't talk about here. That the where did the um, the top twelve tight ends come from? I did the same thing, and it was like sixty percent of them came from um, top ten off top ten scoring offenses, so not DVOA, um, but very similar. And then when I was talking about the quarterbacks and running backs. Probably not surprisingly, those when they did line up and we had a, a top 12 running back and a top six quarterback, it was almost always with a top 10 scoring offense, which is pretty intuitive, I think. Now, we've talked some about running backs and the correlation, but let's move on to splitting backfield work, which is always another hot topic in fantasy circles and deciding which running backs we like and which we don't, which situations are clear and which ones we need to figure out. So, TJ, I saw... A thread from you, including this big chart uh, about backfield shares. First of mm -hmm. all, what do you think constitutes a workhorse running back at this point, which is one of those nebulous terms that can mean different things to different people? Yeah, um, a lot of these Twitter rants are probably just like secret subtweets because I'll see somebody tweet something <laughs> out that just bothers me. So I'll have to start, you know, I'll, I'll go down this research rabbit hole. But I mean, one of those, like you said, those those nebulous things or, or these things we see without context a lot is, um, especially this time of year, the, the, where we're a week and a half, two weeks from training camp, um, or, or right after OTAs, that like, oh, this running back is going to account for, you know, a third of, of the backfield, this guy that we didn't know about. Or this guy's going to be a workout course. He's going to get all the backfield work. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, most running backs don't get all of the work. Um, there's very few, even like a Derrick Henry last year was like 75% backfield share. And most teams don't only use two running backs, which is another thing that, that really throws a wrench in the math, right? We see that so many people talk about a 60-40 split. Well, there, there really aren't that many 60-40 splits. A lot of times it's like a 60-25, a 15 or something like that. Um, so that changes the math a lot on reports that we get. But to answer your question, what I kind of found the kind of the rough cutoff to be if we're looking for a workhorse or a bell cow, however you want to define it or, or name it. Um, last year, we saw eight running backs that played at least 10 games get 
average 70% of their backfield touches. Um, so that's only eight running backs, but I've, I kind of track these numbers every year. And depending on injury luck, that number, that 70% average fluctuates somewhere between like eight and 13 running backs every year. So that's kind of what we're looking for. We're looking for running backs that can get us about 70% of the backfield work. Even if you go down to like 65% or, or two thirds of the work, we really get in a, a gray area where there's a lot of running backs that are like 10 to 24 range where any given week over the course of multiple weeks, a lot of running backs can hit that two third share, but that, that 70% um, is where we really start getting into that elite workhorse role. And, and if you combine that with a good offense, that's where they can um, really just kind of have, at least have the opportunity to blow the field away. Those are the guys that are going to be in our RB one overall conversation. Obviously, if you could find a couple of guys that are in that 80% range, that is that you know, the James Robinson last year, Christian McCaffrey, like I said, even Derek Henry came in a little bit below that Dalvin Cook. I mean, those are the unicorns, but uh, we're not really going to find those unicorns outside the top three. So those guys were kind of, it just depends on ADP. Like we're never just going to be able to find those guys, but we could find these 70% guys outside of that top half of the first round. In breaking out those week-by-week week numbers, did that reveal anything more to you just beyond knowing the full season 70% plus guys? I mean, just as I think the thing that it, it revealed the most is how many of these guys are available. Like We, we like to look at these season-long numbers and say – um, this guy's going to get 50, 60% of the work this coming year, or he only got, you know, 50, 60% of the work last year. Looking at, at it on a game by game level and just zooming out, looking at all the players did it, there are a lot of players that hit this number on a weekly level. Last year, we saw uh, 211 instances of a running back hit 70% share. That came from 59 different backs. Uh, so over the course of the season, we're not going to see a lot of guys hit this 70% number, 65% number, whatever you're looking for. But in general, teams are looking for the hot hand. They are looking for a guy, at least for that one week, that they could really ride. So we might not be able to draft a 70% guy, obviously, with all of our roster spots. But those guys are going to be available throughout the year and that I mean that kind of ties into a much larger conversation about things like zero running back and draft strategy which is an hour long podcast on its own but there are a lot of opportunities to find these true workhorse top 12 workloads throughout the season now without branching off into a whole other podcast topic what what do you think people get most wrong in assessing these backfield splits in planning out the the draft they're drafting or you know as they're going through a draft even I think kind of what we talked about um, when I, I just talked about how people aren't good at, at factoring in these second or third running backs and, and just understanding ranges of outcomes, uh, not understanding that just things aren't black and white. Uh, it's, it's really hard to nail down who is going to secure each of these backfield shares and thinking that if you don't like um a James Conner or a Chase Edmonds that you have to play in a flag in one and, and not the other. A lot of times, especially if you're playing a ton of leagues, if you're playing a lot of best ball, it behooves you just to have shares of multiple pieces of the backfield across different um, drafts. We're just wrong a lot. We're really wrong. We're really bad at predicting ranges of outcomes. People are really looking for black and white, looking at these median projections, and median projections just don't often capture what we're talking about here. 
I think the other important thing too, to keep in mind with all this like touch share stuff is, you know, not all touches are created equal. And I, there's been a lot of good work done on this over the last few years. You know, we, we know like a target is worth three times as many points as a carry for a running back. Obviously a carry from the opponent's one yard line is going to be worth a lot more than a carry from the opponent's 50. So, you know, a, a guy getting 50% of the touches, that might be more valuable than a guy getting 60%, depending on, you know, where yeah. and in what facet of the game those touches are coming from. Yeah, I mean, Alvin Kamara is like the perfect example of that, right? Like, he's never a guy that's going to see 75, 80% of the backfield work, but the touches that he sees are so insanely valuable. Like, we could talk about what it's going to look like with Taysom or, or Jameson there, but he's somebody that has seen double-digit targets, you know, a ton of times. He has a huge touchdown share for his team, so he does kind of break the mold here a little bit, right? He's kind of around that 55 to 60% backfield workload, but his touches are more valuable than on, on a per touch basis than maybe any running back in the league besides CMC. Have we done a study yet on the dreads grill correlation to those high value touches? Oh, the, the, the swag grade. I think Ian Harditz has that locked up. So if, <laughs> if we're talking about the swag grade, um, Alvin's 1.01 and I think Miles Sanders is uh, 1.02. <laughs> there you go. Maybe we'll have Ian on again to, to get the full rankings. Yeah. Those, Alvin Kamara with the grill and the white on white uh, uniforms is, is the best look in, in football. And then, I mean, I think the red and green cleats kind of just sealed it for him. Yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how you score six touchdowns, right? <laughs> now, we alluded to uh, some of the overall mistakes, and you mentioned the Cardinals running backs. Who do you think are some more specific over or undervalued running backs with this in mind, with this this thought that we're going to get a lot of these things wrong and you know some guys are going to emerge from late in the draft? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things wrong, but also just using it as a frame of reference to, to understand context of how running backs are being used and how that usage over the long term should translate into more fantasy points. And I think you kind of asked like what a huge mistake people make with these shared numbers is a lot of times, not a lot of times, all the time we see it, ADP is, is so influenced by fantasy scoring from the previous season, not always usage. So if we could find these guys that – were getting this usage that just had bad luck in the touchdown department um, for whatever reason, just didn't translate into high fantasy points. Those are the guys that are going to stand out in studies like this. And a couple of guys, one guy that really stands out to me is Miles Sanders. He was one of five running backs last year that had at least 10 games with a running back share over 70%. He is able to catch the ball. Didn't get a ton of targets last year, but in his rookie season, he was a fairly heavily targeted running back. Uh, he's going off the board as the RB19 on underdog, 44th overall. So he's somebody that I think going into this year can continue on that trajectory of like 70 to 75% of the backfield work. And um, if I know people are going to look at Jalen Hurts, running and, and um, obviously uh, they got they got Smith in there now as their wide receiver one um, but I, I think Miles Sanders is a guy that is slightly undervalued because of how much work he saw relative to the other running backs in the backfield. Uh, Clyde Edwards Hilaire I think is just a really polarizing guy. He was up and down had a, a crazy week one kind of tapered off near the end of the season that had to do with injury a little bit and then uh in the playoffs was still a little bit injured super bowl they were getting blown out so they didn't use their running backs a ton in that game but over the course of the season he saw 65 percent or average 65 percent of the chiefs backfield touches um one of only 15 backs to do that since the year 2000 so i mean there aren't a lot of rookies that see the kind of workload the ceh has uh miles gaskin 
he averaged 67% of, of team touches when he was healthy. He's going off as the running back 25, 67th overall. On the other end of the spectrum, Nick Chubb and Aaron Jones are two guys that just always really make me nervous. Chubb averaged 53% touch share last year going at that one-two turn. A team that I think is going to be a lot better, especially after what we saw from second half of the last seven games, um, their passing game last year. Aaron Jones, I mean, he's he's been like in that Alvin Kamara out of this universe touchdown rate. I think Aaron Rodgers is going to play. I, I think they're going to be fine. Aaron Jones is just, he, he's scored it at crazy, seems like unsustainable rate. So um, him and Nick Chubb's touch here, they, they scare me a little bit. Are you more on uh, Aaron Jones now that he's going in the second half of round two, though? Yeah, that... Um, I mean, I, I think we're if if we're going to talk in in Twitter or NFT terms, the buying the dips here. I think buying the Packers dips in general right now is a is a pretty good strategy. I I keep drafting them in, in best ball. Miles Sanders is somebody that I want to be drafting more, and it just gets to the point where I'm. Yeah. I, I I have to tell myself not to take a running back when he's on the board, and I have gotten some to this point, but I, he's a good one to bring up because. He already had the backfield shares, like you mentioned. It's tough to look at that backfield, that offense, and know what we're getting with the coaching change with four games of Jalen Hurts late last year. But I don't think the offseason could have gone a whole lot better for his role. I mean, the yeah. guys that they brought in were Kenneth Gainwell and Carrion Johnson and Jordan <laughs> Howard. I mean, I think we were all worried that there was going to be a threat added, and I think that they probably added about as little threat to Miles Sanders as they could have. Yeah, their, their offense just was really abysmal for most of the year and got a spark to, over the last you know three or four games with Hurts. So I, I just think this whole offense is is kind of one to sneaky target. And he kind of falls into, like, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of pumping him up right here just because of that backfield workload, but we were talking about DeAndre Swift earlier, and it's not so much that I'm avoiding Swift and Miles Sanders. It's just the way I've been drafting in that range. I've, I've just had a really tough time drafting running backs in general. So it's just mm-hmm. kind of a, a build, a draft flow type of thing. It just I've found it to be a really awkward range to draft a running back. Sanders ADP is dropping though. He's like getting into the back half of the fourth round now. So I, you know, I think he's definitely turning into a value. Uh, one more guy I wanted to bring up to get your thoughts on TJ, Jonathan Taylor, who, you know, had the massive finish to mm-hmm. last season, came against some bad defenses and, and his role in the passing game didn't really grow, you know, even over that hot stretch. So, you know, is, is he someone you're shying away from an ADP? That's a, I mean, I kind of just talked about like that, that kind of awkward range. It's kind of, it's tough to be awkward in the middle, but after the top three or four backs, like I've been a little hesitant to draft running backs right there. Like Travis Kelsey's going right in the middle of the first round. Um, I don't mind grabbing Tyreek. And if we knew for sure that Aaron Rodgers was playing, I think we would see Devonte going in that range too. So I've kind of bit the bullet and taken Jonathan Taylor there just because I, I think it's bad to have no shares if you're playing a ton of leagues of, of somebody being drafted in that range. But I mean, he did see, you know, two of his last three games over 70% of the backfield work. But I mean, there were quite a few instances where like, even in all the way as late as week 13, he was only at 50% touch share. Naheem Hines being involved and not a lot of people are talking about the fact that the reason we weren't super high on Taylor or some people weren't super high on Taylor last year was because we thought Marlon Mack was still good enough to like eat into his work and Marlon Mack's going to be back. I guess I'm dancing around the question a little bit, but I, I, I am, yeah. I'm, I am, I'm really trepidatious about running backs after the top three guys right now. Ooh, trepidatious. <laughs> Just raise the value of this free podcast. 
<laughs> I, I think one thing that I, so it, it's been hard to get comfy with the idea that we're going to get things wrong. We all know it, but like the job here is to plant your flag with things mm -hmm. and try to be right as right as you can. So I yeah. think that one of the more challenging things for me has been to say, I know I'm going to get some things wrong. Where are some spots where I can, I don't know, buy on the potential of getting it wrong or take some shots, especially now that we're all doing a bunch of best ball drafts and spreading the shares around. And what I'm trying to do is look for those uncertain backfields. Mm -hmm. um, Atlanta, I don't know what else. Tampa Miami's, Bay. Yeah, Tam Tampa Bay. Tampa so, Bay is one of my favorite. And I'm not really drafting Geo, but I, mean, I just think that, that that offense, I think there's value to be had considering how late all those guys are going. Tampa Bay to me is is – more certain than these other ones though. Like Atlanta, for example, I, I want to buy people overvaluing Mike Davis as far as I'm concerned. I think he's way overvalued, but the problem is, and the reason that Mike Davis is so highly valued is it's difficult to see what the answer is if it's not Mike Davis. So, I mean, I guess in that case, I haven't been over-targeting, but somebody like Cordero Patterson, maybe even a share of Kadri Allison here and there, which, you know, might turn out to be totally worthless, but, you know, late, late enough in a draft. And then the Chargers, I think, are kind of a sneaky, uncertain backfield in that we know Austin Eckler, but he's more Alvin Kamara and maybe not even as many carries as Kamara, maybe as many, but we'll, we'll see where that goes. So there's room there for another running back, and we don't know who that's going to be. So Justin Jackson's somebody that's been entering my thinking a little bit lately. Yeah, Justin Jackson, I saw kind of briefly come across the ticker as like, if there's RB2, who's it going to be? Um, and, and they're kind of saying he has at least – going into training camp, the, the edge on, on Joshua Kelly. Um, I put out a tweet a few days ago just about kind of all, all the teams you just talked about, um, the Dolphins, the Chargers, the Falcons, uh, I think it's the Chiefs, like all these teams where we have only run, one running back going in the top 200. And like we've been talking about this whole podcast, most – most backfields have two or even three guys that are that are of value. So those are really interesting. And then um, I also just tweeted something out today, kind of quoting uh, a recent study from from JJ Zacharyson, late round Quebec, uh, quarterback that was talking about these really ambiguous backfields where not just the second guy, but we talked about James Conner and um, and Chase Edmonds. I think Trey Sermon and Raheem Mostert are another really interesting one where we have an ambiguous backfield, but with two guys going like in that middle range and, and the intuition that JJ pointed out was to go with the cheaper guy. And what we've actually seen, what he's seen with the, his research showed that the guy going earlier has, has actually been the guy that's really exploded lately. So like, like the Trey Sermons, uh, like the Travis ATNs or these guys have, we've actually been pretty good ADP wise at identifying who the actual number one is going to be. So I think there's a lot of value in those middle rounds uh, as well. Before we get away from the running back talk, we did have a question from a viewer on Facebook. Jan Bolton says, uh, hey, fellas, where do you stand on handcuffing running backs? TJ, what do you think? In short, um, I, I'm assuming this is just like a, a traditional redraft league. I want to be handcuffing other people's running backs. We just talked about how can I capitalize on not being sure what's going to happen and, and thinking we're planting our flag, right? We want to be drafting like we're right, but also taking advantage of these situations where we're wrong. Where if we're drafting like we're right, then we're let's let's say we take two running backs in the first two rounds. There's no reason to keep investing in what not only in one of those backfields, but in that position. Load up on wide receivers, get a good quarterback if you want, get a good tight end if you want. Strengthen your other positions so that if one of your say first round, second running backs goes down, 
you've loaded up on wide receivers. You're, you're strong through volume at wide receivers. And if they are healthy and you have a handcuff to another guy that goes down, if you, if you have Dalvin Cook, but you have CMC's handcuff and CMC goes down, now you have the powerhouse. We're looking to dominate the league, right? We're not trying to, we're not looking for floors here. So if I'm thinking about handcuffing, I'm thinking about handcuffing either across teams. If I have a lot of shares of Christian McCaffrey, I'm going to have his backup in the other league or within my league. I want other people's handcuffs. I don't want my own. I want to have a chance to blow the league away. Yep. I'm, I'm with you there. I'm generally against handcuffing really in any type of format. I just think it's a good way to come in like third or fourth place. But if you're, yeah, if you're trying sure. to win your league, you need that first or second round running back to stay healthy and, and pay off. Yeah, and one thing I should have said about handcuffs is like if I'm looking at handcuffs in the traditional sense of the handcuff, I think they're generally just a, a, a bad pick. Um, if we're in a right. twelve, if we're in a twelve-team, sixteen-round league, that backup running back that has no standalone value is often going to be the first player you cut when it comes to week four buys, and you need to fill it. Um, give you want somebody with some standalone value. Usually, that's a, a, a pass catching third down back that you can plug in during the buys with the upside to take over a three down role. Um, the pure handcuffs are, are usually some of the worst picks in the league. So I don't have anybody at the top of my head right now, but maybe like a Tariq Cohen, a guy that catches the ball that, that has had good. I mean, a lot of people don't like him, but he's just the first person that popped in my head. But pass catching RB2 is, is usually who I'm looking at. Yeah, and, and I think the line's always blurry between, you know, what's a handcuff and what's a, you know, just a backup running back with some standalone value. But I'm definitely looking for guys that have standalone value. Like, I think of, like, Jamal yeah. Williams this year. Yeah. I think he can have That's starter be healthy. And if, you know, if Swift is hurt, Williams is, you know, a top 15 guy probably. Latavius Murray is a guy I still draft because I think, you know, he yep. pop for a few weeks here or there, and we've seen his upside if Kamara misses time. So those are the, you know, quote-unquote handcuffs that I'm, that I'm willing to draft. Does, does Tony Pollard have standalone value? Please say yes. <laughs> I don't think so, but we don't need to get I, know, I don't think he does either. Okay, I, keep dra- I keep drafting him, so don't listen to anything I said. I think A.J. Dillon is another guy for that category yeah. now. After he was yeah. climbing early in the offseason when we weren't sure where Aaron Jones was going to go, now he's fallen. I, I haven't seen an A.J. Dillon fan in a long time, so now that makes me interested where I was way off when he was in round six, round five. Yeah, and he's, he's a really interesting one because I think – he doesn't fit into that traditional like RB2 archetype who's a, a pass catcher. But like we talked about a little bit earlier when you asked about the the maybe overvalued guys, we've still never seen Aaron Jones get that 70, 75% workload, even though he scored a ton of touchdowns. We just we have no reason to believe that he's going to get 80% of the backfield work, 70% of the backfield work. So AJ Dillon's a really interesting one, especially in half PPR standard league. I'm saying rude things about Aaron Jones though, because he's my number two running back on my main event team. So uh, we're gonna, we're gonna. I have shares of him. I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm so scared to take it. Like, like you said, now that he's falling in that like mid second round, it's a lot better. But at that one two turn that he was going at, like uh-huh. a sixty percent touch share at one two turn is scary, man. Give me, just give me a tight end. I, I just want a tight end. Man. Well, I, I'm gonna <laughs> proceed as though I'm right. Uh, and we'll move on now to those lineup builds that we've kind of, you know, talked about here and there. You were just alluding to it now. Do you have a preferred lineup build or even a few that you mix around for best ball drafting right now? I don't have a single preferred lineup build. I, I did a study earlier in the year, underdog best ball made draft specifically. But, I mean, the the basic premise is that we should really be building our team's 
within the construct of, of how we're starting out the draft, where we're investing early around draft capital um, while sticking in these limitations of how many players you should be taking at each position. So two to three quarterbacks, um, somewhere between four and six running backs, somewhere between seven and nine wide receivers, two to three tight ends. If you're drafting running backs early, you need less of them. And that scales for the rest of the positions in general. If, if you draft a, a fifth round quarterback, you should probably be taking two, two uh, quarterbacks to the position instead of three. So I think what it really comes down to is that early round draft capital, you should be really flexible um, in how you go about that. And then from there, building on these things that we've seen, like the, the hyper-fragile draft strategy, where you're only taking four running backs um, and eight, eight or nine wide receivers. But if we, look, if we look at hit rates from last year, we saw that the teams that trended towards less running backs and more receivers typically hit at a higher rate, whether you're looking at, at league winners, teams that advanced in the playoffs in a tournament, um, team that came in at a certain percentage of scoring. I've been looking at top 10% scoring. Teams with four running backs and eight or nine receivers typically did better. Teams that used six, if we're looking at an underdog build where you have 18 roster spots, if they use six spots on the onesie positions, a.k.a. three quarterbacks and uh, three tight ends together, that's a lot of draft picks towards the onesie positions that typically aren't going to contribute to your flex. Your t- tight end can't contribute to your flex, um, but those also didn't do very well either. The, the exceptions that we saw to that were the zero running back teams, the teams that didn't draft running backs in – the first, say, four or five rounds, when they did end up with six running backs and three tight ends or three quarterbacks, they had a a relatively high hit rate. So if you executed zero running back properly, then the full running back eight wide receiver build, it it was just about as profitable or hit about just about as often. But I I think in general, we should be trending towards as many pass catchers as possible. I've been so fascinated by this all offseason because there's been so much good work done on you know what won these best ball tournaments last season and you know it, again it, it's been awesome work but it's all based on last season so yes. first of all i don't think that's necessarily going to carry over to 2021 and then it really might not carry over because everyone is taking what won last year and, and basically trying to do that this year so you get into these underdog drafts now you know most teams are trying to get one or two running backs in the first two rounds and then pound mm-hmm. wide receivers so yeah. I, I've, I've been tempted and I'm going to really start trying to do it. And at least a few of these where it makes sense to, you know, go, go two wide receivers and a tight end with my first three picks. And then, you know, I know I'm going to get killed for this, but, you know, take some running backs <laughs> in the running back dead zone where, you know, no one wants to do it. Cause you get Miles Sanders in the fifth round. Now you can get Montgomery in the fifth round, Josh Jacobs in the sixth round. Like I know they're not exciting, but at some point they become values and you're just, you're just zigging when everyone else is zagging. I think there, there could be value in that this season. Yeah, there, I, I have, a lot, of, a lot of thoughts on this, um, just kind of on the, on the macro view of, of best ball in general, because a lot of people are taking these best ball mania stats from last year and treating them as gospel. And, and we have guys like Sean Siegel Rotoviz that have done multi-year studies um, on best ball and things that have worked in not the same exact format, not tournaments, obviously, but similar formats. And a lot of times these win rates aren't matching up with what we're seeing from underdog. I also think that best ball is still very much in its infancy overall. And I think like DFS, we're going to see more evolution of um, what we think is, is true in best ball. And, and people are hopefully going to come along and, and challenge the status quo. And we're going to see different things be successful. I, I think 
like what you talked about, Ziggy, and other people are zagging, I don't always think we need to be going completely against the grain. Like if, if people are going with these hyper-fragile strategies, the only way to be contrarian isn't just taking wide receivers early. There's, you could be contrarian at, at other positions as well. One thing that really stood out to me that um, Sean Siegel pointed this out last year, and I kind of forgot about it and ran some more numbers from underdog last year is like the, the, the three running, I'm sorry, the three quarterback strategy where you take the three quarterbacks in like round seven to 12, like not a lot of people are doing this because they think, oh, I took a quarterback in the seventh round and then I took another quarterback in the 10th round. There's no way I can have three quarterbacks. And if I do, it's definitely not in the next two or three rounds. That strategy has had an insanely high hit rate and people aren't talking about like these really micro ways to be contrarian. And then another thing is, is, Draft flow. I, I did a podcast with Mike Leone a couple weeks ago on four four. He came on and guested and talking about things like, you know, the hyper fragile strategy and, and taking two running backs early. Well, who are you doing? If everybody's doing it, one, you're trying to outdraft everyone else at the other positions. And two, where are you in your draft? If you are trying to go like trying to match somebody at the back of the draft or the front of the draft, if you have Christian McCaffrey, and they're taking a running back in the second round. You take Cam Makers and Austin Eckler, and you guys both start with two running backs and going from there. Well, you're playing from behind against that team because that team is starting with Christian McCaffrey, and you're starting with Cam Makers. That is a huge difference no matter who your RB2 is. And if your strategy is going to be the same the rest of the draft, I mean, you're playing from behind all season. So we have to be really cognizant of just because we drafted two running backs in the first three rounds, it's not the same two running backs depending on where you're drafting um, just just on draft position alone. So, I mean, I think you're right, Jared. Like, we can't just blindly go into these drafts thinking we're going to be doing these things. Um, there's a lot of nuance and, and context to how we're drafting, how other people are drafting, and where we're drafting. And even, you know, even a quarterback, you know, the, the thing Sean, Sean found with the three quarterbacks in round seven, you know, that might even be different this year too, because the whole quarterback landscape has changed with them getting pushed up the yeah. board. So the quarterbacks, the quality of quarterbacks you were getting in rounds, you know, seven, eight and nine, two years ago is not the same quality of guys you're getting there this season. Yeah, for sure. I think no matter how many studies are done and how many things people find out about what worked year to year, it's always going to be important to stay flexible in a draft and not adhere to any strategy too rigidly and simply, you know, ignore what's going on in a given draft because there are going to be variations in every one. There are going to be different players to get to you and they're going to be opportunities. Well, one thing I think is really important. Um, and this is the part of fantasy football or whether it's DFS or best ball or, or redraft that that sucks and isn't fun. I think a lot of people don't want to do is like tracking these things and doing the homework, doing the studying part of it. Um, and one thing that, that I've done that's kind of kept me in check over the years doing, I mean, if you're doing five best ball drafts, whatever, do it, what you think is the best thing. But if you're doing 100, 200, 500, we talk about tracking player shares and how much exposure we have to these things. Tracking your builds, tracking your types of builds, your hyper fragile, your zero running back, your four running back teams, your five running back teams. If you're keeping track of those things, then by the time you get to 100 drafts, you should have a pretty good idea of maybe where you're too heavy on one strategy or another strategy. And we should be treating that as a portfolio, just like we're treating our players as a portfolio. Totally. Let's get Underdog to add uh, one of those for us because their their player exposure page is so nice. We need a uh, no. Let's no not have Underdog do that. So the people no no we don't want we don't want we want people to have to try hard to figure these things. Out. We need the edge here. Okay, we don't want okay. it to be easy. That's right. We got to crawl before we can walk, Jared. Let's not let's not move things along too quick. Don't, don't give everybody. Don't just give it away. I got it. I got a kid now. Like, I want to talk for this. 
that's you should know that not to be in a rush to get the different stages let them come because once she starts talking she's not going to stop until she's out of the house so before we head out we went up to the macro level we're talking about builds and all that with these recent shifts in drafting or trends that you guys are seeing i know you mentioned people going with that two early running backs and then moving away from the position i've noticed in both underdog and DraftKings drafts that that is pushing those third fourth fifth round running backs deeper jk dobbins miles sanders chris carson david montgomery is it a good time to do that for running back fragile build is it is there something else that you guys are, are doing more right now than you were even a week ago i think jared kind of touched on it a little bit i mean we've talked a ton about running backs and and i think when people are especially if you're like if you are like somewhere in the top three where you're getting like it's a cmc or or a um or a Dalvin, like there's just a ton of pass catcher value because so many people are just, you'll see like 16 running back runs between your CMC pick and your next pick. So there's just a lot of pass catcher value there. Um, like Jared said, the value of quarterbacks has changed a lot. And I think people that are predisposed to late round quarterback are, are going to have a really tough time adjusting this year. Um, I, I do think that that the um, the Joe Burrows, the Trey Lances, um, the Justin Fields are, are going to catch up to these guys a little bit. I don't think it's going to happen this year because so many of them are rookies. I I am putting a really big emphasis, like in best ball, getting two guys at the, at least one of these top 10 guys, often two guys in redraft, always trying to come away from my drafts with the top eight or nine guy, just because we saw that the scoring and, and quarterback go from very linear to a very clear tier one and tier two compared to the rest of the field. And um, whether you're redrafting, trying to stream or best ball and trying to make up those points, I just think it's, it's really hard to do this year. And I'm not going with the early round approach. I'm, I'm obviously Josh Allen guy. I think I was on here tied him last year before uh, the season started. Um, it's just going to, it's going to be too hard to get a Josh Allen or, or a Patrick Mahomes, but instead of waiting for the 10th round in my redraft leagues or, or best ball leagues for my first quarterback, getting one in the sixth or seventh round this year. Yeah. With you there, I've been trying to get the Dak, Kyler, Herbert, Russell Wilson type. I also want to get one of the top six tight ends. TJ, yeah. have you done any work on it? Is it, has it been, you know, plus EV to say, you know, take a, a quarterback and a tight end with the first, like with your first six or seven picks. Cause I always feel like I'm a, you know, a bit weak at running back and wide receiver when I'm spending two, early round picks on the onesie positions. You know, I, I think it might be the way to go this year, but I, I'm, you know, again, I, it makes me feel iffy at running back and or a wide receiver. Yeah. I, I don't have hard data in front of me. I do know that where people um, have kind of gone wrong, whether it be a hyper fragile build or, or a zero running back build, if we're looking at these extreme strategies is it does open up um, these draft picks for you where you really should be strengthening yourself at, at other positions. And I think that with, if we're just looking at the 2021 season with how values have been pushed up, we already talked about a quarterback and, and then these elite tight ends. I agree with you. I mean, I'll take it even further. I want a top three tight end as often as possible. There's times where I'm, I'm passing up. I'll just keep, I'll just keep driving the knife. I'll pass up an, an Aaron Jones for a Darren Waller um, when I, when I can. And then, yeah, coming back and getting a Dak, I, I think it, it puts you at a huge advantage over the field, especially running back being the position we've talked about the most if you've done your homework and you have a, a list of seven to ten running backs in that eight to twelve round eight to thirteen round range that you're, you're really confident um in drafting i do think there is a lot of of um credence to drafting quarterback in the tight end relatively early yeah. I mean, the other nice thing about it to me, I think, is I feel comfortable 
sticking with just two quarterbacks and two tight ends when I take, yeah. you know, my, my top guy early and an underdog when, you know, only 18 rounds, having those extra few, you know, extra couple spots to play with at running back or wide receiver, I, I find pretty valuable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little less in our control at tight end because they're, there really are. I mean, there's three elite guys, and then Mark Andrews and Kyle Pitts and Hawkinson. You you could kind of debate where you rank them. Um, so I mean, if if you miss out on the top three guys, it's it's easier to to get um, to justify taking three tight ends. Where quarterback, I mean, even if you don't have a top four or five guy, if you have the the quarterback eight and then a, a quarterback that you think is going to start every week, like a Joe Burrow, like we could be pretty confident that our quarterbacks yeah. are going to start, which quarterbacks are going to start 16 games. And and us, we talked about drafting like you're, you're right or wrong, especially if you're playing in the tournament on underdog. Like you need things to break perfectly already. Um, so outside of like that, that three quarterback hack that Sean Siegel talked about, I mean, if you're two quarter, you need your two quarterbacks to go bonkers anyway, for the most part to, to advance, not just pass around the run, but multiple rounds. I, I think for the most part, two quarterbacks is, probably my, my hard lane for sure. Well, we could definitely keep going on this stuff all night and hit all the positions, but I think I'm on the clock in like six different drafts. So uh, I'll say you can find his work at 444.com and on the 444 Podcast Network. You should be following him already on Twitter. You probably are, but if you're not, you should definitely go do so for quality content that's absolutely free. TJ, thanks very much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'll see you in the uh, Draft Sharks Invitational Streets. That's right, man. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now for full rankings, new articles every day. Join us on the brand new free DraftSharks Discord to ask us your questions, run your teams by some veteran fantasy players. Basically, just talk about whatever you want. For Jared Smola and the rest of the DraftSharks crew, I'm Matt Schaaf saying thanks so much for swimming with us.